You're listening to audio from the Village Church, a community that's formed by the gospel and sent on God's mission, gathering weekly in the heart of downtown Hamilton, Ohio. For more information about the village or to connect with us, you can find us online at myvillagechurch.com. Okay, I'm going to be reading the focal passage, John 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day, there is a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of the signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and the disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. Good morning. My name is Michael. I am one of the pastors uh, of the village. Thanks so much for hanging out with us this morning. Uh, What is it that you think about when you think about the idea of God, or like a God, generally speaking? Um, What are the primary kind of characteristics, or or what is the the biggest attribute that comes to your mind? Like maybe you think of like some classic Santa attributes. He knows when you're sleeping. He knows when you're awake. He knows when you've been bad or good. Like so be good, for goodness sake. Um, maybe it's, it's characteristics like, like just not being confined to, to time or, or really just having no limitations. We asked the question, like, if you could have, uh, if you could have any super, you know, power, what would it be? And like, you know, invisibility or like, what are the things that you just think of when you think of like, when you think of, of, of God in general, anyone with any sensibility about the world, all of the yearning, uh, of superheroes and, and all of that stuff, all of the drawl of all of those things that come down to this, who has the power? That's, that's what it is. Who has the power? God is the one who has the power to transform the world around us, and, and not only the world around us, but here in this text today, we see something that helps us see that, but it just it looks a little different. Here we see Jesus begin his public work and his public ministry to bring into view the kingdom of God, and it may not look like you'd imagined him starting off with, right? He doesn't blast into the room and pew, pew, pew. (laughs) He doesn't just, it's not like that. It looks so different. Here's what we see in in John chapter 2. We see uh, a wedding. We see Jesus being uh, invited to a wedding, which is cool, right? He was, in a, he was a guest. That's pretty great. His disciples, who had now been following him for three days, they're invited to the wedding as well, or at least they show up. 
Uh, his mom was there, Mary. That's pretty cool. Um, and so they're hanging out. They're having a good time. And, and they, they run out of wine. It's, it's a family and friends uh, kind of occasion. And I'll talk about the context in a few minutes. But um, you, you get the idea that most people know most people. And, and so they run out of wine. That's a really big deal in this context. And you would say, well, that's a really big deal in our context. But certainly it was here. Um, Mary uh, and, and Jesus have some words, and, and Mary says something to Jesus like, hey, like we're out of wine, and Jesus says like, what are you telling me for, right? And then, then we see him move to action, and she says this weird thing like, just do whatever he tells you. And then Jesus says, hey, fill up, fill up the things with water. And, and there are these big, huge uh, stone jars that that hold together like 120 maybe 180 gallons of water they fill them up and he says now take some to the head waiter and take some to the head waiter and the head waiter tastes it and he says this is magnificent wine why did you say this till the end like what why wouldn't you have he says to the groom why wouldn't you have put this out at the beginning and and then we see that kind of people are watching this happen and his disciples believed right that's what happens. Uh, remember, why is John writing this? Why is he telling us? Well, well, it's, it's that we may believe. It's just like the disciples. This is John's goal in letting us know the accounts of Jesus. And, and what we've seen to this point in chapter 1 is a lot of words. It's, it's been verbal to this point. To this point, we saw the, the prologue, which is often called the first 18 verses of chapter 1. And it really just attests to the greatness of of the word became flesh, of Jesus being God from God, one with God, always having been and always will be. And then we see John, John B., right, John the Baptist, he, he's the last uh, great Old Testament prophet, and he's the first proclaimer of Christ in John's gospel. And he begins to, to prepare the way, and he says, he is the one, he's the, the Lamb of God who will take away the sins of the world. And then we see these five followers of Jesus say, I, 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 want, I want to follow him. He is the one. And so you see them be convinced. And so he's showing us to this point, the, the reader, firsthand witness of those, who, of those who behold and those who believe Christ as the Lord. And now we kind of, kind of segue into the, the second chunk of this, chapters 2 through 12, which is what... Well, that's where we'll be hanging out until, like, July. You okay with that? Um, and then we'll take a break, and then we'll finish up the, the back half uh, later on. But this is his public ministry. It begins here, and, and, and what we see, the way that John shows us who Jesus is, and it kind of oscillates between the words of Jesus and the works of Jesus. And then after that, in chapters 13 through 17, we see kind of his private ministry with the disciples. And then the last four chapters, 18 through 21, we see the betrayal and death and resurrection of Jesus, where John spends a ton of time talking through all of that stuff. So regarding his public ministry, the way John talks about this is he calls them signs, signs that he is the one, right? Uh, signs, as John calls them, we're told twice that he did so much more that the world couldn't even handle. If the book was written, the world couldn't handle it. Now, I don't know that he had a concept for like for cloud, cloud storage stuff, but what he's saying is like there's not a hard drive on the planet that could contain this book. 
Like, it, it doesn't exist. He did so many things. You just couldn't even believe it, but here are a few, right? And so we're looking at these few, and, and, and he does this here to kick things off. Now, in light of power, those of you who are familiar with, with God in the Old Testament, and it's the same God in the New Testament, it's the same God that we get to live in light of and worship today, but but man, he showed himself in ways in the Old Testament that were like big and like firework shows and smoke and clouds and thunder and, and, and all kinds of just wild stuff. And so as everybody's looking forward to this one, this king that would, that would rule forever, they're expecting something crazy, something big, something triumphal. And Jesus shows up at a wedding and he serves wine. Right? Something so simple, yet meaningful in ways that, that are only made clear as his ministry goes on, right? And, and what we see in this few verses today is, is the power of Jesus to transform the world around us points to his power to transform, to transform the world within us. Well, how do we see it, and what does it mean? Well, today, it's a Christmas bonus. I have two points, not three. <laughs> I know. You can feel it. It's wild. So wild. The first one is this. One, the power to transform the physical. It's just really simple. Jesus turns water into wine. That, that's pretty simple. It was water, and, and within a few moments... Apart from physical contact, Jesus changes the chemical composition of 150-ish gallons of water to wine. H2O, as we know it, becomes, and, and say it with me, uh, C6H14O2. Just like that, right? That's what he does. On a chemical level, he transforms it. There are no tricks. There's no Kool-Aid powder. There's no fermenting process, no smashing of grapes or, or any other fruit, right? No magic. I saw this. Uh, I've not seen the show. I've seen like a couple YouTube clips or whatever, but uh, these guys, Penn and Teller, they're famous magicians, right? Um, they do a show where, where a magician tries to kind of stump them, and, and he or she or whatever like is on the stage, and they do a trick, and you have Penn and Teller in the audience, and sometimes they get the audience involved, and there's lots of stuff, and then <clears throat> they do the thing, and then right after that, Penn and Teller, like, they have a few questions, and they say, hey, did you, uh, was it this, was it that? They just try to figure out, like, what's going on? How did you give the illusion that, that you're doing magic? Because we know that you're not really doing magic. And if they can't figure it out, then the person wins or whatever, right? And so, so they search for a loophole, and, and they're looking for sleight of hand, and they're looking for that moment where the magician... Um, it kind of fools them or the trick coin or help from someone in the audience. And sometimes they pull it off and like who would watch the show, right? Um, but no one has. So I, I don't know, right? Uh, this isn't that. What happens at this wedding, it's not that. Th this is not an illusion. So much that there are people involved in the sign, in, in this miracle, th that they're not even aware, right? You have the venue staff, uh, in that interaction with Jesus and his mom, uh, Jesus says, okay, fill the, fill the vats. Fill, fill them all the way up. 
filled them to the brim, and, and then you have moments later, someone walks it to the head waiter, and he tastes the best wine. So somewhere from the time to where they filled those things up, and then they poured some out, and they took it, and everyone's watching like, what is happening? And he drinks it, and he says, wow, this is amazing. This wine is incredible. Like, gosh, you, to the groom, you've been holding this stuff back. I can't believe that. And you have the people who just fill the things with water saying, like, hold up. Like, what? What just happened? Right? And it's easy to think that, that everything that happened here just unfolded and it was crystal clear clarity. But you know it wasn't. You know everybody's like, huh? And you know somebody else is saying, did you just see what? And like, so you're telling me water? Why? I Why this miracle in this time? I don't know. I have no idea why this miracle in this time, but, but let's look at the consecration that he does. The context is at a wedding, all right? And I said it's a family and friends event because Cana is, is nine miles outside of Nazareth. Nazareth has about 500 people in it, which is why you have uh, our boy Nathaniel last week saying, can anything good come from Nazareth? Like, just that tiny little, like, I don't even, do they even have anything? How can something, like, you're telling me that famous person, that there's something big, whatever came from this little town? Like, that seems impossible. And we have that in, in our little town when, when some kids make it to the Little League World Series, right? Or, or when you have, see someone, like, on The Voice, and you're like, no way, they're from, like, or you have uh, uh, an Olympian from, from Trenton, Ohio, Right? And you're like, no way. How, how did they even swim? Like, how is it? It's a similar thing. You, you get it. 500 people in a small town. They're in an even smaller town, nine miles down the road. And so this is a big deal. Like, if you're going to do something, like, this is a social event. It, it's a big deal. Jesus is going public. But, but first, he must transition his identity before the ones that know him. Most people at this wedding are going to know him. Now, I know that we live in a different world um, <clears throat> today in terms of context than we did then. And, and a lot of that has to do with everything being in front of a screen. And certainly you read the Bible and you say, gosh, like if somebody would just live stream this, like that would have been really nice. You know what I mean? Right. And, and that didn't happen. But but we see a danger here that that we can that we can walk in as well. The real danger in being someone to the masses that you're not to those who know you best? Like, there's a lot in this, but, but what if Jesus was a phony? And what if he came to be and everyone around the world is talking about Jesus? And the people that knew him best are like, no. Like, no, he's tricking them. There is no way that this guy is that guy. I know him. I played t-ball with him, Right? Or whatever they did in the ancient Near East. There's no way that that guy is this. This is really tough, right? But what if, what, if, what if Jesus duped the whole world but not those closest to him? That's a real danger. And it's a danger that, that you and I get to walk in as well. Like you should never be something that, that the masses that don't know you think differently of you, right? And so later on we will read this. And, and we've already seen this. That, that he came into his own and his own people did not receive him. And it gets worse, Right? But, but he has to start somewhere. And at the same time, his language to his mom, I love that uh, 
flavorful reading, Emily. That was really good. Um, he calls her woman, right? And, and in our context, you're like, oh, he what? Right? I know what you're thinking. You're like, oh, th- this is why. This is why I don't follow Jesus because it's archaic language and it's uh, chauvinistic and demeaning. Relax, right? If you want to talk about that, we can chat. But that's not what's going on here, okay? So it sounds like that. Um, it sounds like woman. So, so she says to him, Jesus, we're out of wine. And he's like, okay. okay. Like, I don't even work here, mom. <laughs> like, why are you telling me that? And maybe she's like a friend of the family. Maybe she's just super helpful. Maybe she's trying to get involved in stuff that she has no business being involved in. Like, we don't know. But Jesus is like, what? And, and he says this line, he says, woman, what does it have to do with me? Like, my hour has not yet come. And, the, and you have, he's sitting at a table with his disciples, and you imagine they're like, what is he talking? His hour has not yet come. Like, what is he talking about? Right? There's just so much cool stuff and just this subtle interactions. But what he's saying with that word woman, it's, one, she goes to him because you imagine that Jesus was probably good at solving problems. And he hasn't, like, revealed himself in, in the, the, the way where he's going to take on the sin of the world. He hasn't done miracles to this point, but you imagine, like, he was a pretty, out pretty well. Hey, Jesus, like, we're out of wine. The groom over there, Tommy, he's going to be just devastated. And Jesus is like, I, my hour has not yet come. But what he's saying when he calls her woman is, is he's beginning to separate a little bit, right? As if to say that this is my time to leave, but, but that is not like an endearing word. It's a, it's a bit of separation between him and his, and his mom, and he'll use that again, right? But, but it's as if to say, this is my time to leave my, my mother and declare my allegiance to, to do the will of my father alone, which I've been doing all along. But at this point, I kind of have to like separate a little bit, and I have to begin doing something that I came here to do. Later on, he'll use the same word when he says, woman, behold your son. When he's on a cross and he says that to his, to his boy John, who's probably the one writing this book. It's the same thing. It's a bit of, of separation. So this moment also starts and, and it kind of brings to light the countdown clock. My hour has not yet come. What is he talking about? What, what he's talking about is his, is his death. He'd always been singularly focused. And here he begins to let it be known that all of his life, was about the end of his life. Mom, it's not yet time. And they're like, well, I don't even know what that means, right? Isn't that true for, for all of us, for, for those who choose to follow him as well, that our life begins with the end of his life? That, that is true for us. Right? And so he affirms the beauty of, of the sacred act of, of a wedding. Uh, they probably said something like, uh, for those who disagree or don't want this to go on, like speak now or forever hold your peace. And Jesus seemed to have held his peace, right? And so he's uh, affirming the beauty of the sacred, this, the sacred covenant of, of, a, of a wedding. And then he demonstrates compassion on the groom. Like I said, uh, the groom has been spending the last year or more proving himself. To her friends, to her family, certainly to her father, if that were the case. He's been building a home. He's been working. He's been uh, trying to put back some money. He's been preparing this wedding. 
prior to Pinterest, which is, like, that's the miracle, I think. And, and then, he's, and then he's, he wants to serve them wine, right? He wants to honor his guests. Not having wine is a, is a social disaster. And so Jesus just demonstrates some, some compassion on this groom that, that we don't even know, right? C- can you imagine, though, like, weddings and A-list stars and, like, who's there and, like, red carpet stuff and, like, oh, Justin Bieber attended the wedding and that's incredible. Like, you know, imagine, like, 40 years later on their anniversary and their kids are, like, hey, mom, dad, tell us again, like, what was your wedding like? And they're like, Jesus was there. <laughs> that's pretty cool. They didn't know that at the time. Um, but so, so that's kind of the context. But what is, is being demonstrated? Well, well, he's demonstrating his power over the physical world. In subtlety, he, he begins with like a, okay, like, like what's the first thing? Like, what is it going to be? And we don't know why he chose this, but, but in subtlety, he, he begins with like a, <clears throat> what if I told you that I have a secret? That's what he's doing. Um, If someone you know could legitimately change water to wine, what would you believe about them? Well, I know what you would believe. You wouldn't believe that they could do it. You would be looking up on the internet and like, how did it seem so real? How did they pull that off? You wouldn't be thinking that they actually did it. But if they actually did that or something like that, your mind would begin to think, okay, hold on, what, what else have they said? What are the other things that they have said, all right? Uh, recently, uh, we saw just a, a clip of stuff while Kim and I were wrapping some gifts. Santa Claus 2, it's great. The first two are really, really good. Third one is a bit much, but the Santa Claus, that's up there, all right? It's Tim Allen, you guys, come on, you need to look that up. But anyway, so uh, the Santa Claus 2, he's like showing himself to be Santa, and like he's using North Pole magic and stuff, so it's like the analogy crumbles at some point, but you get the idea that he gets close to someone, and he begins to like demonstrate himself, and he's like, I have a secret that I want you to know, and, and then he tells them, and they're like, no, like how dare you, like, and he's like, no, but, I, but really, I am, and, and look at all the things that I've done, like remember when we were on the, the little uh, sleigh, and it was snowing just over us, like in the street, you didn't think that was weird, like you, you remember when, like, I showed up at your work party and I gave everyone exactly the, the thing that they needed, like, the, the gift that they wanted, and the party was so lame, but, like, it was better because I was, do you remember that? And it's like, wait. And so you see in this room some people on different lines of that spectrum, some people being offended by this, and some people saying, like, is, is he really the one? What would you believe about the one who could actually do that disbelief and maybe it would give way to belief, but maybe you would think they have supernatural ability to engage with the physical world. Like, who would they have to be to have this ability? One that isn't confined by the world around us, one that isn't restrained by it, one that isn't limited by it, one that isn't submission to it or, or its natural laws. He was with God in the beginning and all things were created through him. And apart from him, not one thing that was created, that, was, that, that has been created. Later on, Paul would say it this way to the church, um, to the Colossians. He says, he is before all things. By him, all things hold together. And so what we begin to see is water to wine. But if he legit 
can control the world around him in this subtle way at a, at a party we're having. What if John is building a case that you might believe and not only believe, but you would behold Jesus the Christ as the glory of God and the hope of life. And if Jesus is not limited by the physical world, then, then he is all powerful to conform it to his will. And we will see more, but, but the first sign, we see this water to wine, and, and what John does for us is he shows us seven more signs throughout this book. In, uh, in chapter 4, he heals a dying man. In chapter 5, he, he heals a paralyzed man. In chapter 6, he feeds thousands of people with like a happy meal, right? Um, and then he, then he walks on water. And if you saw that, I know what you would be thinking, like, He's not walking, like, where are the ropes? Like, these things. He gives sight to the blind in chapter 9. He raises a dead uh, man in chapter 11. He catches and he serves his disciples breakfast in chapter 21 in this miraculous way. But the last and the greatest is that he raises from the dead. And, and not only that, is that he said that he would. If Jesus can change water into wine, then maybe he does hold all things Together, And maybe he is the creator and the sustainer of all things. And if that's true, then maybe we should take a closer look at what he says and what he does. Maybe our life feels like it's falling apart because we aren't walking near to the one who actually holds all things together. Maybe I should worry a little less and pray a little more. If he does this. Maybe I should fear less and trust him more. Maybe I should follow him and I should let him lead me to the fullness of life. So we see the power to transform the physical and, and then also, and, and this is a little more subtle, we see the power to transform the people. If we were going to devote our lives to something or someone, we should probably be persuaded by more than just one moment, than just one event, right? Imagine the position of the disciples. They behold him as John the Baptist tells them, he's the one. Stop following me. I've taken you as far as I can. Follow him. He is the one. He is, he is the lamb of God. He is the son of God. Right, who will save the world from their sins. He is the one. He is the Christ. He is the Savior of the world who will transform the people to a place long abandoned, a seat at the tableness to the darkness, and he will bring healing and restoration to the broken. They are three days into their new center of life. Right? It says in the beginning of this, uh, and it was the third day, and what they're talking about is the third day since Jesus had that moment where it became clear that he was the one. Three days. The disciples have been following him for three days, and they're like, hey, uh, he's our guy, and we're pumped, and we're going to hang out with him at the wedding tonight. That's pretty sweet, right? When he said, follow me, man. Like, we follow a lot of people. And, and every YouTube video you watch, it has those little three clicks and like, link, follow, subscribe, share. And in so many ways, 
when we think about following Jesus, I think, it, I think that we think it a million things. But when Jesus said, follow me, these people, they, they lost their life, right? And I'm not talking, I'm talking just culturally, they were following a rabbi, a teacher, who was going to teach them, and they like knew that he was just not some, any, not some random rabbi, some, some teacher, but they didn't know what they didn't know. Like, they, they didn't know. And so, three days into the new center of their life, they gave stuff up, they gave their life up, they forsook, and they committed to a new life around a new person and a new worldview and a new center. Three days in, Jesus begins, as John chronicles, to build the case for his lordship, the great king of promise, the suffering servant that will bring healing. All of the, the born-of-a-virgin prophecy that's laid dormant since his birth But we can imagine the hope of promise. It hasn't gone away, even though it may be laying low. Had this child before she was ever with a man? You don't think that crosses her mind like from time to time? You don't think that when that angel showed up in a room and was like, Mary, you're going to have a baby and it's going to be a real big deal. She's like, yeah, but like I've not been... You don't think that those things are fresh in her mind? You don't think that she's had doubts? Thinking like, he's 30 years old. He's still living at home. I'm just kidding. He's not. <laughs> you don't think that she thought that? So, so the religious rulers of the day, right, they were very, very concerned with the things of God, the external cleanliness through rituals, right? They washed everything, pots, hands, people. If you were sick, you were out of the city, washed. And it wasn't necessarily a, wasn't that you were bad. It was just that you weren't clean, right? So you couldn't stand in certain places. You couldn't worship in certain ways. You couldn't be with other people unless you were kind of ritually clean. So Jesus comes to set all of that external ritual in its rightful place. He begins to show that it's the status of the heart before God even more than the, the cleanliness of your hands. So, so who we are matters more than what we do because our actions can't transform our heart. But our hearts do transform our actions. That's why you can law someone, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And they might do the right thing. Is that what you want? It's always the, the parental fight is, oh, I could get you to do the right thing. I want you to do the right thing for the right reason. And the prophets, they exposed the human condition. All of the book prior to this, right? The, all of the Old Testament, it exposed our, our human condition. It, even for God's people, Israel, like, I don't know what you know. But they were, like God's people, they, they, didn't, uh, they didn't look this fancy. You're just holding in your laughter. It wasn't like that. They didn't always get it right. Right? They struggled. It's a, reading the Old Testament is a disaster. Time and time again, you're like, what are they doing? 
They, they missed. Why, why are they missing so much? But the Old Testament acts as a mirror for us. The law in general, cover to cover, acts as a mirror for us to see ourselves rightly. Each person was, was always justified by faith and not their works. And the greater problem was that the word revealed in the law came as an ideal community with God, as his covenant people, but also as a bar that was unattainable given this is sin. We couldn't do it. So where we pick up here, the ruling religious leaders, they were very committed to rituals, as, as if only to keep God at bay, away from what he wanted most, which was their heart. And, and it's so easy to pick on these people. But like, can you imagine being in a room just like this? And uh, with a child or, or whatever, and, and you're singing, and hey, when, when we go to church, you sing, all right? You sing these words. Uh, okay. Imagine a child or a friend or whatever singing the words, but being far from the Lord. That's how easy it is. Right? Or, or in a, a, a really public context, right? National anthem. Hey, you know, young man, you didn't have your hand over your heart. Hey, I love my country. Right? Well, I, I can do this, and, and I can be all kinds of things. And I could love the country that I live in, right? The point is, it's, it's not just the external things, but it's what's going on inside of us. And that wasn't a political statement. If you think that it was, don't talk to me afterwards, okay? <laughs> um, Scott. O'Donohoe. At... <laughs> oh, man. So where we, we see this, like we shouldn't condemn the Pharisees or the Jews that we'll interact with a, a whole bunch, but well, without first knowing how they get here, right? right? If, if I do the things, then I must be good. If I'm good, then God owes me. That's what external religion does, right? Uh, that, that God then is my debtor, not the other way around. Right? This setup in mind helps us to understand later on why the Jews are so upset when Jesus commands that they lose their life for, for the cause of Christ himself. If they are righteous on their own merit, then God is subject to them. But here's the thing, that, that isn't reality for them, and it certainly isn't reality for us today. There is no such thing as self-righteous. And we say the word like, oh, they're very self-righteous. And what we mean is, is they're not righteous at all. There is no such thing in, in this book as one who is self-righteous, that is righteous uh, in their own self. It's just a posture or a perspective that one holds with, with no actual reality to back it up. That is to say there is none that is righteous on his own merit, no, not one apart from Jesus himself. So no matter how many dietary cleanses you do or how much water from these huge barrels you pour over you, you are a wretched soul in need of something greater than water can make you clean. That's the context. The context is this. You are a, a rotting corpse inside and a beautiful coffin on the outside. You're, you're the best looking cookie you've ever seen, but when you bite into it, it's just hard and it crumbles. No one wants that. 
a sports car with no engine. Your problem isn't external, it's internal. Your brokenness isn't around you, it, it is you. And that is the greatest news that I could ever tell you. Jesus shows us what we need in those vats instead of a ritual water which makes the body clean, wine which represents blessing in the blood of the covenant. Jesus isn't coming to nullify or replace the covenant under the law. He's coming to fulfill the law. And he will draw on this initial connection throughout his ministry. Through Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, think about what Jesus did with the water and the wine. and Think about what wine will mean at the end of his life. This is what Paul says, For I received from the Lord what is also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. This is the end of his life, the last week of his life, the last meal with his disciples. He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, we took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink from the cup, wine, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever, he goes on and he, and he gives a warning. He says, gosh, so when you eat this meal and when you drink this cup, make guilty. So he says, let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. Which is why every week when we take communion, I say, this isn't for you if you are not in Christ. Right? This is not for you. It's for those who are remembering and declaring this truth. Jesus is laying the foundation. In him was righteousness, cleanliness, and life, and the life was the light of mankind. So you imagine his disciples, and I, I love reading through the Gospels because it, it just lets your imagination, I'm not saying that you're making up doctrine, I'm just saying you get to say, what was this like? You imagine his disciples laying in bed that night, and they're talking about the day and, and, and the miracle and the wine and the party. Did you see the look on their face when they, they drank? Like, what was he doing? Can you imagine? What was he thinking? What were they thinking? Did you see the look on the Jews' face when he used their tubs that were set apart for ritual cleansing? It's not like a Gatorade with a big Gatorade thing with a spout on it. This is like a holy thing set apart. Like, could you did you see the look on their face when Jesus brought the wine in those things? They were so mad. And hear me, they're going to be they're going to get angry. He used their, their ritual tubs for fresh wine. Can you imagine maybe them trying to figure out what happened, why it happened, how it happened? And if he did that, then surely he is the Lord. We, we can't do that. The one who tells the waves where to stop. And, and maybe he's the one that tells gravity how strong it gets to be or, or what makes for, for good wine. He's the one with all creative and sustaining power in his hands. What we know, but they didn't know. He used those hands to lay down his life. The one who, who filled the stomachs of the dinner guests with the best wine would spill his blood from his own stomach. 
the one who's set out in ministry by, by making the best, freshest wine. Gospel Transformation Bible note says this, what is revealed about Jesus in this first sign? Through Christ, all things were created. He has power over the material universe. Who is Jesus? He is the Messiah who has come in the fullness of time to usher in the longed-for messianic age in which wine, which is the evidence of a blessed fruitfulness, and the mountains will drip with the best wine for the joy of God's people. Who is Jesus? He is the one who takes what is meant for purification and he provides blessing through it. In doing so, he shows that he transforms the daily Jewish purification rites by the power of his perfect life and later by his blood. Who is Jesus? He's not merely the guest at our weddings, but the great bridegroom who makes us his bride by the cost of his life. He clothes us with the wedding garment of his own righteousness, and he prepares us for the great wedding banquet of the Lamb. His beginning, it sets up the pattern of Christ offering the sweetness of life. And then the end of his life, the last drink that he tastes is sour wine. That's, that's the great exchange. He restores and he redeems and he brings beauty to us while drinking the cup of bitterness for us. He isn't a magician. He isn't just a good guy to follow in the universe. And he uses it to be what we could not be, the righteous lamb who laid down his life to give life to those who couldn't have it apart from him. And that same power is the strength you need to be remade in his image. If you desire, if you find yourself today desiring to live in light of his glory as your prize in life, but you can't do it. We mustn't think that it's by our discipline or our toughness or our ability to just do the work or do the right thing. All those things are great. Do those things. All those ambitions are fine. But the work is to believe and our lives will be transformed by the one we follow to the extent that we do. Behold and believe. Believe and behold. All the days of our life, that's what we get to do. And that's why he ends this by saying this. The first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory. And his disciples believed in him. Obvious question. Do you believe in him? Right? There are probably three ways that you can respond to that. The first one is yes. And then what we get to do if you find yourself there, God, would you give me faith to believe and, and discipline to stay near and a heart that beats for yours? Right? Maybe you would today say no. Right? I'm not convinced. Or maybe you would say no. Like, maybe I believe, but the church is just so or whatever excuses you have, right? I, I'm not there yet, and, and this is what I would say. That's okay. Like, this is a safe place for you. I get that this world is a tough place, right? 
And so we want to walk with you in that, and, and we would pray, and we would ask that you pray, God, would you give me faith to see, and would you open my eyes to see you in a way that, that I just can't yet. And maybe there's the third way to respond, and it's something like this, yes, but, but I just fear what it will cost me. And if I follow you like I know you're asking me to follow you, my life will look different, and maybe my friends will look different, and maybe they'll look at me differently, right? And, and this is my prayer for you in that situation that, that, uh, that, that I pray for you today that, that you would boldly trust him and that you would publicly follow him no matter the cost and that in doing so, you might think that you're giving up your life. When we do that, what we're actually doing is finding our life for the first time. The power of Jesus to transform the world around us points to his power to transform the world within us. So as the band comes up and we get to sing some songs, we get to respond in faith today, we get to pray and sing and, and sit and meditate and rest and trust and, and whatever it is, we would love to pray with you by that red tree. You can pray at that prayer bench over there. You can pray right where you are. You can stand up and, and pray. You can sit down and sing. For those who are in Christ by faith alone, we get to eat the bread and drink the cup in remembrance and in declaration of the fullness of God revealed in Christ, his body broken, his blood spilled. So what, what we get to do is we get to delight in the wine of remembrance, for he has given us life by the power of his blood. Father, thank you for your word and this just sweet interaction that you've spared for us, that you've set aside that, that you... You captured this moment in word so that we might be built up by it even today. We love that, that the power of Jesus transforms this world, not only on the outside, but also on the inside. In Jesus' name.